0: and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond. And today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or You've watched us grow from humble beginnings. We're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education. And our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interviewed to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. This is episode number 427 with Davey Fogarty of The Founder Podcast.
1: What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty
0: human who is intent on learning. It's
1: a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now, 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 Now,
0: The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. Today, we're sitting down with Davey Group founder, Davey Fogarty. Now, Davey's responsible for Australia's fastest growing e-commerce brand, the Udi. and in the past four years, Davey's taken it and the Davey Group to over 400 million in sales and has built a suite of successful e-commerce brands. So today, we're going to go really deep on what it takes to scale your product and e-commerce brand in 2022. This was an awesome one. I did it with him in person. If you like watching interviews in person, make sure you check out our YouTube channel. Otherwise, please welcome to the show, Davey Fogarty. I'm really excited to speak with you, man, because um, I've watched your story from afar for the past year since you've kind of really put yourself out there. I'd heard of you through our mutual friend Greta for many years of you killing it behind the scenes. So um, the first question I ask everyone
1: is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? You know, it's funny, I I was telling you before that you're actually the first podcast that I listened to and when I heard and you were asking it back then, it would have been four or five years ago or something like that. And I remembered that I just did not have a good answer for that question. <laughs> I still don't think I do. Um, my job is, is interesting. It's obviously progressed like most people. Um, it started, uh, you know, standard school, um, graduated school, and then I went into university. Everyone was telling me, get into university, get that piece of paper, it's, it's required. And then I um, got into growth hacking Instagrams, which is how I met Greta. She's the Instagram queen. Um, and I was growing Instagram's 600,000 followers or something like that. Um, that was really kind of at the same time as the mining engineering. So I had a bit of a decision to make what to kind of pursue. I realised that I really liked entrepreneurship, so I did what every normal person does, and I started a Vietnamese roll shop. Uh, so I basically dropped out, of, I dropped out of university to start a Vietnamese roll shop, all while doing the Instagrams. Honestly, I don't know why Vietnamese rolls, aside from the fact that I really liked eating them, um, which is probably not the main requirement of starting a business. But yeah, started that. That went downhill really quickly. Instagram kept doing really, really well. Um, started selling the Instagram, selling advertising, as people still do to this day. And then, yeah, basically um, re- launched a couple of e-commerce businesses as well. So... You know, that was obviously fueling a lot of my failures. I've had a lot of them. Um, And then I launched e-commerce. I tried to do seasoning. So I I was basically in my shed grinding up seasonings, trying to sell them through these Instagrams. And I realized that I was doing a lot of like hacky permissionless stuff and I, I really didn't have any idea how to connect with the audiences because these impressions on Instagram Uh, Very, you know, low connection, low relevance if you don't know what you're doing. And that's pretty much what I had at that point is really kind of unengaged um, followers. So it didn't really work. Ended up, yeah, moving to Melbourne um, and just to keep learning this stuff, learned a ton from Greta, a ton from yourself and a lot of other people as well. And then ended up launching, you know, I was actually started videography and I think that that was really a massive turning point because it helped me create video ads and connect and learn how to tell a story, how to pace things, how to work with the platform algorithms. And then, yeah, ended up la- using that videography, all those skills that I learned along the way to launch Calming Blankets, which was my first e-commerce brand. Oh. And, yeah, that was kind of like I was actually just like on the tipping point of quitting, you know. Yes. As, as this... Um, I probably wouldn't have, to be completely honest, but it really felt like that. It almost felt like I was really at at peace and happy with videography because, you know, I could travel, like it was doing something that I really enjoyed. And I kind of left this ambition kind of just be like, look, if this is what my life is, it's fine. I'm I'm just not cut out for entrepreneurship. And I just said, look, one more go. And then that's when I launched Calming Blankets and I brought that in and it did really well. It really, it was just right product, right time. Um, Definitely my ability to communicate and market at that point was, was way, way better. So it grew really, really quickly. I'm not sure what revenue we did first year, but it would have been over, over a million dollars in its first year, which was great. Um, And then from there, I launched Udi pretty much at the same time. Yes. And Udi is now our biggest brand that, that grew very, very quickly. And since then I've just launched a a lot of other products.
0: Yeah. Wow. So love to fast, uh, before we fast forward, I'd love to kind of just go back. So you started the Vietnamese roll company, local business in Adelaide. Yeah. And where'd you come up with
1: that idea? And when was that? Like how long ago was that? Okay. You're testing my memory. I think it would have been it would have been five years ago. So pretty okay. much straight out of school. Yep. Yeah. Straight out of school. Eighteen? Well, one or two years out of school. Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. So twenty. Yep. Okay. And then at what point did you realize so you, you got a you know, you got a store location front, you set up branding. You hired staff. You like, assume I set up
1: branding. Yeah, <laughs> it was. So you hired staff. Like, how much did it cost to fund that? Where did you get the money to kind of fund that? For sure, it was all through Instagram. So I, I was sold um, one of my Instagrams for over thirty thousand dollars, and I, I did that, you know, a multiple over ten thousand dollars, kind of at that age, yes. selling them. There was other people um, that had, you know, that was probably a failure on my part as well, considering. The past that my colleagues that were also growing Instagrams at the time built yes. businesses. Greta is one of them, yeah. building million-dollar businesses. You know, I I was just constantly doubting what I was actually building. I didn't have the foresight to, or people around me to kind of communicate this is a legitimate business. Mm. Um, you know, one of my mentors is is 100%. My dad, he's always helped me with business, and and I don't think he understood it. Yes. Um, obviously incredible other things in with his business and whatnot but yeah it was entirely self-funded at that point. Got you and how long did it take for the Vietnamese
0: role uh, business uh, for you to kind of go you know what this isn't working this isn't for me what was the tipping point there?
1: Yeah that was um, I'd love to say that, that was you know I thought I needed to give it a crack uh, I, I don't like giving up it's against my nature but the lease was two years. I gave it two years. I think I actually exited six months early yes. um, from that So uh, and just kind of sold it. I didn't make any money from it. Um, but, yeah, it was – I was – because obviously when you don't have a successful business like that, you need to be the employee in it. You're constantly working. So I was doing 12 hours days just cooking Vietnamese rolls in my lunch break, flipping Instagrams and whatnot, doing what I probably should have been doing the whole time. So um, – yeah, it was brutal. It was a big year and a half um, sprint. Yeah, there you go.
0: Okay, so when did you start the seasoning and get into
1: e-commerce? When did that – so that was about four years ago, three years ago? So I think that overlapped when I moved to Melbourne. Yeah. So um, I stopped that. In fact, yeah, I stopped that and then came over to Melbourne, was doing the seasoning while that was happening, wasn't working. Um, I think that was about a year stint and then – I came back to Adelaide um, and then, yeah, that takes us to 23, 24 years old um, and that's when I started Woody. Yeah, got you. So you've only been doing Woody for about, or, and coming back for about three, four years. In some, yeah, like, yeah, I've done only been truly in e-commerce for about four years. Yeah, wow, that's impressive. So where does this entrepreneurial spirit come from? I think it's a good question. I think there's a, you know, it's not a simple answer I've been very fortunate in my upbringing. Um, I'm very, you know, cognizant of that. Um, I always had security in my house. My parents were well, um, business owners themselves. Their business doesn't exist anymore. It was just a local furniture shop, but they've always encouraged me to take risks. So I think that's kind of the the one of the main reasons. It's just always been part of my upbringing. Another one is just you know in year 10 I was like asked to pretty much leave school I was you know going nowhere getting in trouble a lot um people were just uh very aware that I was um yeah doing the wrong thing on a lot of occasions and then um yeah basically I had two teachers that kind of saw past that and saw that I did have ability my physics and my English teacher and they basically just um, sat me down and, and really gave me the the attention that I needed to believe in myself and then uh, you know so long story short I think that the doubters in those situations really made me want to do what I can do and then also make you know my parents proud as well.
0: Yeah awesome um, so you could say that you had a bit of a chip
1: on your shoulder something to prove? Definitely, definitely. I, and I think I think mm-hmm. I think that is one of the strongest motivators, you know. Yeah. And I don't think it's the most healthy motivator. And I think if you're lucky, you let that evolve into something that's more internal rather than external. So more so really wanting to prove it to yourself and, you know, just enjoying the process rather than proving those other people. Because I think um, I've already done that <laughs> in some some regards. Mm.
0: So. What were the biggest lessons that you got from the early ventures with the Vietnamese roll company, the seasoning business? It sounds like you probably had some other e-commerce businesses, even from flipping Instagram accounts back in the day. What could you share? Um, it was been great lessons.
1: Yeah, there's obviously been a lot. I think the first one is um, learn who you are as a person. You know, the so me if you kind of break that down, what that looks like is. I just jump in and I just do stuff, and that causes me issues to this day. You know, I'll just buy this business, I'll do this. It's just like, it's it's a very action orientated mindset. Action creates um, information. Like that is okay um, if you kind of have the foundational knowledge to make sure that that action isn't going to be extremely detrimental. So the the Vietnamese role business is a good example of that. So. Getting the baseline knowledge is really, really important, especially when you're a young entrepreneur um, to before you start doing those ventures. But at the same time, don't be on the other side where you're just constantly learning and you're not doing anything because you're just not going to get that information um, that you really, really do need. So you might fail a couple of times. Don't be afraid of that. The second probably more practical one um, that you can also distill from those stories is the... Um, is, is, is product is everything you know if I had calming blankets even in that situation that product I probably would have succeeded um so it is really about having that right product and that right knowledge about how to get that product out there in the early stages
0: yeah and you do some really cool stuff with product testing products I want to talk through all of that because um it sounds like that's been a key successful ingredient to the ventures or any of the brands that have you've, you've had in your portfolio that really take off. Um, I'm curious though, just this one is uh, one thing I've noticed about you is you you, you, you can do media buying, mm-hmm. you can do videography, mm-hmm. you can do social media, you can write direct response copy, mm-hmm. you can start things. like you, you are a real jack of all trades. Where does that come from? Because that is not unique right? Usually you, you either got a marketing or a product guy you've got something that's quite operational like yeah like yeah how, did, how do you force yourself to kind of work all these things out and where do you find that time? because that's really impressive. Do you think that that is
1: unique about you or do you not or I don't think that's unique about me. I think it's a relatively rare experience and that experience is a privilege of being a single founder. you know you kind of forced to do that. If you're a bootstrapped founder, not hiring people straight from the get-go, you're forced to learn all of those things to make it work. Mm. I think if you go the above layer of those things that you just mentioned that I'm good at, I'd like to say that my team now are much, much better at me at that. If I'm in the ad account, I probably will stuff it up if I try to touch it nowadays. But in the early stages, yeah, I was doing all of that. I think extract parts of the media buying, which is the more um, pattern recognition element of it, you've got, you're a creative. So the videography, the copywriting, you're just a general marketer in all of those senses. And that really um, became apparent about how bad I was at operations and finance. So there definitely is the strengths. I'm not kind of an anomaly where I can do it all, um, but my mar- marketing is definitely my strengths. Creative is definitely my strength. The other stuff has been much slower to learn. Um, so yeah.
0: Do you think that these skills are required in, you know, if you want to launch an e-commerce business tomorrow um, to have an unfair advantage?
1: Yeah, I think there's obviously a lot of ways to launch your business. To do a bootstrapped e-commerce product and follow the path that I did, you 100% need to understand the marketing. You can't forecast your way out of that business. You can't be super good at ops. Um, you need that marketing person and generally you don't have heaps to spend on it and as you know marketers are actually quite hard to get um so i think you know unless your co-founder is a marketer um or something like that you're going to struggle to get that cash coming in to fuel your growth that being said if you are you know raising capital or you do have a best friend that's a gun at facebook ads then that that can make it work as well because you are going to need that polarizing skill set um with ops and on finance as well Mm.
0: and is there a reason you don't have a co-founder or co-founders or you do actually yeah you do
1: some stuff with Greta yeah so you have a few co-founders a few brands right yeah so the David group like Woody Calming Blankets that's all 100% me and that was you know probably not really by design like I see value in having a co-founder it's just I, I I didn't launch it that way um obviously grew quite well so um it worked out really well, but you know, I'm not, not against working with people, that's for sure. Yeah. So let's talk about the Udi. how that concept
0: came about, how you came up with that idea. I know you have a unique process when it comes to finding product ideas. You have the Davy Group, which is kind of like uh, a Thrasio, Thrasio, Amazon brand. You're trying to build like a PNG and g kind mm. of Procter & Gamble. Is that the play there? And you're just always testing different brands? Is that...
1: yeah. I think the the play there is probably a bigger topic. Um, like how I find products, I'm generally looking for trends globally. That's how um, calming blankets and and all my products have kind of come about. We find trends that haven't been kind of capitalized in certain markets or in certain marketing channels. Yes. And then we also obviously add our flair to it. You know, we dif- you need to differentiate your product, otherwise it's just go- your margins going to get eaten away and um, you know it's just obviously better to progress businesses like that so um, yeah that's kind of how we find our products we make sure that there's a strong contribution margin we, we make sure that we can build like yeah a really good value around the product we do a ton of licensing and we make it's like the highest quality possible fabric that you can get so um, that's that's pretty much our requirement I'm actually building I, I have big workflows and I'm building tools around how to find products as well yep and
0: right now across davy group how many products are you testing
1: how does that all work in that machine yeah it's interesting to say that S- since last podcast i've done probably my answer's going to change a little bit here so ios caused a huge issue the privacy updates that have made tracking in facebook very very difficult my also knowledge around the longevity of these products has also changed so you know we used to test hundreds of products a year um, what that looked like is getting you know sample three to five units bringing it in understanding the cpas that we could get shooting it as if we had a million of the products yep um and then understanding the cpa because the cost per acquisition is the variable cost that you don't understand it's it's hidden in the ether until you to bring it to light so the the reason why that that, that was quite flawed in some ways is you don't actually understand how far that's going to scale as well. You can get that initial CPAs and you, over time you get a touch and a feel for it. You'll get 15 return on ad spend as soon as you launch it and you're like, okay, this is this is an Audi-style product. Um, and then some products you'll bring in, I'm not sure if you've had this experience, you probably have, all entrepreneurs have, you're so excited about the product, you've done all, everything right, all the market research, you spend so much money on it, so much time, and it just doesn't even convert. You don't even get one sale. So that they're the, they're, that validation process that I just mentioned is great for finding those polarities. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still see a lot of value in, in doing it if that's the question you're trying to answer. I think over time, I realized that, you know, what is going to move the needle for us as a business that's, you know, doing over 150 million revenue a year, we need to go after something a bit heavier. And like time is also a bit of a problem for us. Resources is a problem. So we still look at it like this is going to be a validation we'll commit a little bit harder but we'll also consider the longevity of the product how does this fit into our brand narrative and stuff like that as well got you so when it comes to davy group how many brands do you have right
0: now God, good question
1: we have about five major brands
0: um yeah so there's coming blanket still
1: the UDI, What are the others? Are you able to share? Upnaps. Yep. Uh, UDI, Outdoor Play, and then the other one I can't can't share just yeah. yet. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Outdoor Play is a US-based business that was an act- actually an acquisition. Yep. Um, which is an interesting business. You know, you mentioned Thrasio before. They're an incredible roll-up company. Um, a lot, there's a lot of aggregators out there at the moment focusing on Amazon, which makes sense. Um, the business model of, Am- of Amazon aggregators you know they're obviously going to be struggling with the current financial climate you know the supply chain crisis then also multiples now coming down that was their whole play multiple arbitrage so there's lots of complexities with that but in its its foundation really does make sense in that the optimizations that they can make on one amazon listing may be able to be transferred to the next Mm. um and the tech stack is much simpler the shopify aggregators which i don't consider us as one just yet i'd probably say be procter and gambles as yeah. you kind of phrased it um there is complications around the tech stack and stuff like that that you need to consider like what so for example different 3pls um different uh front end so shopify magento big commerce like you can't just apply a base theme across things the way you split test things are going to be different workflows all of those kind of things even acquisition methods is big so um, and, you know, these are all hindsight things. I probably didn't think about these before the acquisition as, as much as I should have. Um, but, you know, the acquisition methods, you know, one business is heavily reliant on, say, Google versus, you know, Facebook acquisition, which is more of our OODI side of things. So yes. even your team um, resources need to be different and your knowledge gaps need to be filled. Got you. So are you kind of realising
0: that if you slowed down on testing new products launching new products launching new brands you'll still do it but perhaps there's a more focus play on
1: on the ones that are really working and doubling down is that definitely i think that's my main um main takeaway and uh from last year is you know we really need to focus on our main levers the udi could be far bigger than it was it was sold out 50 percent of last year um so now we just need to focus on our kind of main levers and since we've done that you know udi's just skyrocketed like, you know we restructured teams and whatnot to allow um, single focus on brands, not getting heaps spread across, which is a massive, massive lesson. Also, obviously, capital is an incredibly important thing. We shouldn't be applying heaps of capital to products for a brand with, you know, 1 million customers when we could do it with two, for example, um, with 2 million customers. So, yeah, some big lessons in that for sure. Got you. So coming back to the UDI, how fast did it take for you to get traction?
0: Like, like you said, you tested. Did you test the other products, and you just
1: saw nothing like with Udi? Like, what's special? You know, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I think where we feel very well, I know I certainly do feel very lucky around the products that I hit. Granted, I failed a lot of times. I've already been into that, but the the those products, my first three products, skyrocketed. You know, they did minimum a million dollars in their first year. Um, you know, I think Udi did two, then twenty, then you know two hundred or something like that. It was it, it just went really, really quick. And this is where the whole business model of testing and validating and finding those products um, came in play because I was like, okay, I've hit these three. Everything is easy. You know, I'm okay media buyer. I'm okay at this. I'm okay at that, and it's still taking off. And we're over. We're surpassing other businesses. So it really is that core foundational product. But as I said before, and this is why I'm developing tools and processes now for a data-orientated approach before we even validate to really tick all these boxes and pick these right products um, so that when we launch them, you know, we, you know, just trying to find the the answer before we even bring it out, if that makes sense.
0: So I'd love to delve a little deeper on that. Like, what does that look like? You said, you know, like... You're setting up tools and processes to, to work out from a data-driven approach, mm-hmm. not just from a paid acquisition. You're getting these CPAs. What what yeah. other things? It's a good question. I don't want to plug
1: my products okay, too badly because okay. oh, it's so SaaS.
0: Should so you build, it, an I build a SaaS? SaaS yeah. yeah, I don't want
1: to use your yeah. platform yeah. Yeah. to yeah. plug my products. Yeah, it's okay. No, but, no um, yeah, we, I started a tool called Trend Rocket. Yep. And basically, what it does is it scrapes all of these data points, so Facebook, TrustPilot reviews, Instagram. Yeah. Um, it looks at ad libraries. It looks at it, even goes to Alibaba, contacts suppliers for their feature products yep. that exist out there, understands the cost of goods. What that looks like in the end is you're getting a large data pool of how and w- how well this product is growing in a certain region, what tools they're using to grow it, um, and then also where that trend is not currently leveraged. Because oh, that, sure. that, that ad inventory is so important to CPMs. I think it's one thing that's kind of not understood well enough um, is how competition affects your ads and not, and more because obviously it's a um, relatability question. So if there's 10 way to blanket um, people advertising in Australia, they're all going to, and someone shows interest in that, that's, we're all going to be competing. So if there's no advertiser, what then happens to your CPMs? And that's really. Aside from the products, aside from you know the, how good calming blankets and woody were for our customers, I think that that's one of the main reasons they grew so quick is because there was very little competition in those regions for, mm. for similar trends.
0: So what I'm hearing is effectively what you're trying to do is productize your process
1: yeah. of finding brands to use software to scale that out. Exactly. I've had so many people ask me how i have done that, um, so I've just you know gone gone and reverse engineered it because um, we've launched so many you know I'm yes. using the lessons of those failed validated products as well I'm like why didn't this work so yeah just trying to reverse engineer that and put in a SAS so other um, people can learn it but if you were selling it wouldn't
0: wouldn't it make it difficult to have the uniqueness like wouldn't that
1: be an unfair advantage for mm-hmm. your group look I think it's a I think it's a it's an interesting dilemma and I'll cross it for that to become a problem, both for my group and the existing customers on the platform, you know, there's going to be a million brands on this, on this thing. What I'm, what I do believe is there's not, there's not, you know, a million opportunities to launch an e-commerce business at all times. There might be one in each niche each year, these success stories um, that you see. So, but my theory is that if I can get it to a point where that becomes a problem, it's going to be a big tool and it's already helped a lot of people. So, um, yeah, I'll, I'll cross that bridge when we come to it.
0: Okay, interesting. So little similar to like Jungle Scout, right? Like Jungle Scout, you go on Amazon, you can see volume, you can see opportunity, all,
1: all sorts of things, right? Exact, exactly yeah. right. As I mentioned before, the tech stack becomes more difficult because there's, there's multiple um, things at play and people are using different review platforms and stuff like this on their Shopify store. So it's like, yes, it's like Jungle Scout, but more complicated because there's a lot more other tech involved.
0: Hey, guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, You should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder, hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump into the show. Anybody watching this right now is looking to launch a brand. Like, what's the most common mistake you see new brands making?
1: Oh, I think just crap marketing. Like, you just, you, I think, you know, I, I put it in different buckets, and I think that's important to do as well. So, you're a brand new founder and you're trying to launch a product you go to the Shopify website there's nothing in the footer it's like the copy is really really bad they're using stock images they're like they don't understand what that customer actually wants you know they're not they don't have clear product images it's just like all of these things that install trust which I'd like to say is just crappy marketing the other brands yeah I would, like when you're trying to get when you maybe found that successful product and you've got like a bit of a better website and stuff like that, that's when it probably more comes down to the the, the feedback loops that they are then creating within their business to scale it, which, you know, maybe it's a technical problem. Maybe they're structuring their ad accounts poorly. Maybe then it's not producing enough content on Facebook. It's kind of those things that they need to just keep repeating, um, but it's that that's the common question that I get when the first new entrepreneur and they just haven't taken enough time to go look at 50 brands and just look at how they've structured their website and kind of copied those elements to build trust. Got you. Um, So do you have like a template around a
0: Shopify and like a CRO like because you would have done so many split tests where you're like we know if we do this, we know if we do this. Like I I follow guys on Twitter where Mm. they're like uh, there was a guy this Carl i forget his yeah, last name yeah, 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 yeah he did he did recommendation for my fiancé's website healthish right. and then he did one for yours or yeah. and and like it looked like he had a sort of a blueprint
1: do you have a blueprint of things to do yeah can you share some of that yeah carl's carl's fantastic so i think i think that that element is maybe a step further which is probably those brands that are already successful which is yeah you need that framework to start split testing and you hit the nail on the head going to Twitter and following people like Carl and a lot of other people as well that are publishing these best practices and then just going in and implementing them. That's a great way to do it. I think um, for the new entrepreneur, you, I would do that as well, but you just need to go to an established website. Like the, the traditional, the big guys are kind of setting the ideal format for a website that you then just need a copy. You can even go to like, granted we've got actually a lot of things that we need to fix on that, but you could go to like an ASOS or an Iconic and really look how have they structured their footers. Okay, I'm going to do that. How do they structure their descriptions in their products and just kind of look at that and and really dissect how do I build more trust. Got you. So um,
0: when it comes to kind of I guess all the different brands, you talked about product being a common denominator. Is there anything else that you could share with our audience around the repeatability of, of the framework that you're using across the group mm-hmm. that you think is key when it comes to starting successful brands? Because you have an incredible track record, to be honest, man, and the, the speed in which you've grown um, the audi. Calming Blankets, all these other brands, it's its seriously impressive. So I'm just trying to kind of decode that a bit more.
1: Yeah, look, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I think the main thing is you're trying to find a product that scales through a very scalable paid digital format. And if you just break that down, that might be TikTok organic. So really testing a product or an idea on the paid format of your choice, getting initial traction, and then just doubling down on that and building processes to just keep repeating it. It's um, That's the main thing.
0: So you talk about paid a lot and as mm-hmm. a, a strong way to kind of test different products. You talked about data privacy, iOS 14, um, and the performance of paid advertising. No business has been immune to that. Like for us at Founder, you know, we've, we've, we've been hit. All businesses have been hit. Many businesses unfortunately, have shut down um, because they've been so reliant on paid advertising. It still works. Like, you know, we sp- still spend a lot of money on Facebook ads and in and- all sorts of paid traffic channels. I Like, what's your take there? What's the lessons been for you? Are you still spending a ton of money on Facebook ads, uh, TikTok ads? Like, what's your take? I'd love to hear where things are at for you there.
1: Yeah, everyone's been hit. I think our larger businesses, have, uh, smaller businesses have been disproportionately hit. Mm. Um, I don't have a strong theory behind why that's the case, um, even when we're looking at percentages changes. I think um, maybe there's just less data to work that Facebook can have even more. Um, you know, Udi's got a lot of data that's flowing through it. Um, it's incredibly tough. And I think that this is where a lot of businesses that have poor products are going to to really struggle as well I think one of my main lessons which wasn't really it was you know hindsight's 2020 when people ask you are you diversified from an acquisition channel you're like yeah I'm advertising on TikTok and it's just like I think that the to have the level of thinking to understand that there's actually a platform issue and reliance on Apple iPhones was would have just been incredible. So, you know, we can say that we're diversified through Instagram and Facebook, so Instagram influencers and Facebook, but it's all flowing and so reliant on that single element. And I think that that's going to continue to get worse. We've got the Android privacy update coming, I think, next month. Um, I do think that that's going to be a lesser extent um, because a lot of our... Uh, you know, everyone probably in this room already has an iPhone, so um, not too many people are getting served ads on Android, especially within Australia. So lesser extent there. I think, um, yeah, it's, there are attribution tools out there, to name a few. We've got the Triple Whale wow Pixels just came out, but um, a more probably robust, in my experience, tool is NorthBeam, um, which is I think these tools, um, there's, there's a couple of others out there, so do your own research. I think these tools are great to remove um, multi touch attribution and really understand if a platform's working. So, a really strong example is um, in, so in Northbeam, we'll get an a, a even ROAS for, say, Facebook and TikTok, but Snapchat will be one hundredth of that. And, we're, and in the platform of Snapchat, we're getting a seven ROAS. Yeah. So, it's just like it's great to kind of iron out these tools that might not be working that are they're saying they are working there's nuances to that of course but that's kind of how i'm using those tools at the moment i'm not looking at them from an ad set budget optimization at this stage because um, taylor holiday has got some really good quotes on twitter about this so go check it out but he talks about how these tools aren't actually feeding data back to facebook so therefore you're making optimization decisions that won't be the same the next day um so I'm not using them currently from an ad set. I am checking it, just kind of seeing how off it actually is because um, in some sense, you know, Facebook should just be doing this stuff themselves. So um, I think aside from that, we use kind of like a multiplier approach. So where, you know, the, a, a 1.5, say, rise in Facebook ad account um, might be, you know, a 3 in the previous state. Yes, now over time that's going to continually shift so we are constantly kind of watching that and kind of using our own multipliers within the platforms and making sure our media buyers really do have a touch and a feel for what was what's currently and then also what the output is of those channels so we use what what's called an mer which is like a a full funnel return on ad spend we plot a graph in our dashboards which is sales and then we have an mer target if you know, our MER MER goes too high, which is like, let's say 31%, um, what we'll do is we'll we'll pull back Facebook as kind of like our main driver. Yes. Now that's problematic because while Facebook is like our primary driver, we're starting to get some really good results with TikTok. So TikTok is starting to really drive some traffic for us. So that can also move the um, sales and MER quite dramatically. This is where we're starting to get this is starting to get a little bit more advanced and probably not for for all your listeners i probably wouldn't advise going ahead and doing this unless you're spending quite a bit on these platforms but building platform specific role as targets within Northbeam, so that's where we're getting to um but right now we just really use an mer we optimize on very much on like ad carts um cost as well um from an ad set level to try to get the best decision and then you know just Hope and pray. <laughs> Not actually. <but. laughs> and like what else are you doing? Like I'm just genuinely
0: curious because it sounds like you guys have been really, really strong on paid advertising. Mm-hmm. sounds like you still are mm-hmm. but, you know, like for example, um, do you know Rob from Quadlock, another Melbourne yep. guy, big e-commerce brand. Um, you know, for those guys it was really funny. I, we interviewed him, oh, I interviewed him like three years ago mm-hmm. and he was saying like I'm going to move into retail. And so he said, like, when we caught up, he said, oh, Nathan, it's so funny. Somebody watched the interview that you and I did three years ago and they were like, Rob, you were right. Retail's where it's at now. Like, are you guys going hard on retail? Are you doing more on influencers? Are you going harder on TikTok influence? Like, yeah, talk to us kind yeah. of like, what are you doing to combat this stuff? Because it's easy to see from the outside, you know, you're super successful you've got a nine figure uh, portfolio of brands or one nine figure brand like it's really impressive but what are you doing at this kind of level to kind of you know cuz cuz this will continue to happen right like platforms come platforms go like one of my mentors he you know he was doing one 1 cent clicks with google ads mm-hmm. 10 years ago founded right. co-founded big commerce right nice. when when they were playing against shopify right that platform you're not getting one cent clicks yeah you know, it's a dollar, two dollars, right? So platforms come, platforms go. I'm just curious, like what, what, is, what, are, what are you doing? What are you, how are you approaching this?
1: Yeah, I think um, I totally agree with the retail and wholesale approach. The because I think you know we we say we're direct to consumer e-commerce brands. I think that that's pigeoning us as you know we're brands. Like mm-hmm. we need to think that way. We need to think that um, you know we can be in all of these retailers and stuff like that the reason why i didn't in australia early is because we were moving so much and this might not be the right approach in hindsight but there wasn't many retailers that could move enough to kind of make it worth in australia in the us and these other places where they've got you know walmart target um all of these massive retailers they they um it really does make sense and it's i think looking at it now it's all about focus for us like where Previously, I wanted to focus on creating a ton of these brands and because that's what the landscape was allowing me to do. Yes. And that digital was easy. I was in a coronavirus period where I can launch kind of any product and it would scale like crazy. Granted, we could still probably could do that, but I don't think it's the best use of our time and capital. I think the UDI, we're really refining what the brand actually is as a first step, getting all of our levers and f- workflows sorted within our existing business core business because i don't think we've done that yet you know one thing that's maybe different to a lot of other brands is we went global really quickly like we tried to get the market you know we kind of own the market in uk there are some people growing there um, we're slow in the us but we're probably biggest in canada as well um, europe we, we can grow quite dramatically there if we were to kind of then put our resources into like retail or wholesale here, that might just not be the best opportunity or best area for focus for us right now. But I'm very much in favor of the, the strategy because I think it's just a good cut providing you can maintain the customer experience. I think it's just good to be able to give the customers your product in their medium that they want it. You know, whether that's Amazon, you're going to make sure the financials make sense, but if they're in the store and they see your product and they already wanted your product, that's just a good customer experience. So, um, yeah, definitely in favour for it. So I would say, to answer your question, what else am I doing? We're just getting that sorted, um, dealing with the volatility of the market right now. We're not over-leveraging ourselves with inventory to facilitate that kind of stuff. Um, and we'll probably look at retail wholesale next year, Yes. what market that is. I'm not sure. It might be Australia, might not. But we're also I'm putting a lot of resources into making the UDI the the biggest clothing product. Um, comfort wear brand in the world so we want to you know really own that lounge pajama space globally um you know there's other big players that are doing clothing that really rely on their tech and their ai like Shein and stuff like that you know that's that investment in that rapid testing framework how does that fit into the retail strategy and the retail strategy is very much more downstream um Finding these products is more important than what I've been talking about, and that goes down to a skew level of clothing as well. So I really want to get that nailed and then we'll go to the retail wholesale.
0: Mm. I'm curious, like the UDI sounds like it's just such a behemoth. Have you ever considered just cutting everything else and just going all in on the
1: UDI? Look, it's a good question. I think I think I had investors that were, you know, wouldn't come in because I wasn't diversified enough. And that really played in my head that what I should be doing is getting diversified. My answer for that was to build all these brands, some that didn't work, um, which in hindsight was a really bad capital allocation decision. Um, I, I actually talked to some other people recently and they're like, you're too spread thin. And it's just like always, people are always going to poke holes in that. Mm-hmm. But to, to answer your question, I don't think I would enjoy that. I think I really do enjoy launching lots of stuff and trying new things and learning stuff like I I love the other brands as well so really from a capital allocation return on investment point of view yes it should just be all in but um you know I I don't think that that's as fun as it could be I really want to build like a fun brand we just launched a boucle range that's selling really well just about to launch a fleece range as well doing lots of licensed collaborations and stuff like that so it's just it's just good fun
0: yeah no I respect that man because um that's what it's all about at the end of the day like you know it's about having fun and uh you know the highs are high and the lows are low right like uh but um you know, it's obviously something you consider i just had to ask you so um we have to work towards wrapping up I'm, I'm conscious of your time as well and like uh you know this is an awesome conversation man i could talk to you all day um you're selling a product every 10 seconds I'm curious around the machine that you have to support that around what does your team look like. Can you talk us through that? You said you restructured things. You now have one person not working on multiple brands, which is kind of, you know, economies of scale play, which, yeah. So so talk to
1: us about that, how the team is structured. So the smaller brands, I think smaller brands really should run lean, and that's the beauty of e-commerce. You can run a small with kind of like one brand manager that's either generally marketing focus um, and then you probably need a counterbalance of customer service and ops and that can be a small that can scale you know three four million dollars just that team you can use agencies as much as you want scale up scale down Um, the bigger brand um, you know we will share finance and hr to those smaller brands just because it's a very um, scalable kind of resource Honestly, when a brand hits a certain size, I'd definitely get a fractional CFO and fractional bookkeeper and, and separate it as quickly as possible, but they can't support that at this point. The, um, the, the team, you know, we have CMO, uh, COO, CFO, and then underneath, I'm not sure if this is going to get too technical, but we do have like a head of content, um, a head of e-commerce, which is handles merchandising, everything that goes on the website, handles developers, um we also have uh what else have we got under that team we've got like a head of creative who handles a lot of that they're the kind of the custodian of the brand managing that side of things um we've also got uh you know obviously our media buyers we've got a head of retention which is kind of like our email marketing people um yeah and then under ops we've got a, a, a big team underneath that that handle forecasting all of those kind of elements um yeah, I'm not sure if it's getting too granular. No, that's cool. Um, and that team is split between Melbourne and Adelaide. It is, yeah. Yeah, so customer service, we've we've got a lot in Adelaide. We've also got a lot of our content creation over in Adelaide. That's yeah. just how it happened. Um, and then we've got, uh, yeah, a lot of our, two of our C-level people here, a lot of our ops team here as well.
0: Yep. And do you, so you often fly your leadership team to Adelaide or you guys are moving in between?
1: We do fly our leadership team over to Melbourne. So yep. we've got more leadership team here and we do, you know, our strategy days here, which is really, really good. Um, I think the main thing with remote work is to build uh, a certain cadence of meetings and all the key things really need to be structured in a weekly meeting where you, you tick everything off Um, you know cameras on to ensure that culture but then also nurturing it in different ways is is really really important it's been a bit of a challenge but we're definitely learning how to do it yeah got you and then um
0: i have a lot of respect that you're still building the business out of adelaide when you're like you know talent you know there's not as much talent in adelaide right it'd be usually in melbourne or sydney um why is that is that a
1: lifestyle choice family choice uh yeah, it's a it's a good question. I think as there's a lot of value in it. As you mentioned before, Toby Pierce from Sweat um, did it as well. There, there's huge, It's especially when you're struggling to find someone for a role, it's amazing to be able to post in two regions. Mm. If you've got the full remote setup, it's so, so good because you can compare candidates. We have not, you know, picked or choose from if someone was better in Adelaide, would hire them in Adelaide. That's just how their splits ended up. Um, granted, a lot of uh, recent roles have been in Melbourne, but our Adelaide team is, you know, top um, top class as well. They're, they're incredible. So it's just kind of how it fell. Obviously, if you can't afford, you know, two offices, it's not the best. Go- it's not the leanest structure, but, you know, our people are kind of everything and the reason why we've been so successful. So it, it's worked out well. Yeah, awesome. And um, you as a
0: leader, right? Like, what are you, 26, 27? 27... 27- um, you know, you've got a, a senior leadership team, C-suite leaders. Um, what are you doing to develop as a leader and, uh, yeah, moving into like this true CEO role? Actually quite fast from how fast your business businesses have grown. That yeah. must be a big
1: change. It's been, it's been the most unnatural thing um, that I've done to this point, you know, both from me being less hands-on, which is just against my nature, but also, you know, just how much you have to learn and how there's no actual, there's, I've read a lot of books on becoming a CEO and listened to a lot of successful CEOs on on podcasts and it's just so variable across, you know, what your role needs to be, what your team is, where your company is at, is it in wartime, is it peacetime, it's just so, so difficult. It's definitely something like as a huge introvert, I re- really do struggle with, um, and it is it is really my main thing that I'm just trying to learn how to lead and um, how to structure organisations like through OKRs and encourage a C-level suite and stuff like that. It's, it's really, really unnatural and challenging. All I'd say is, um, you know, treat people with respect and, and just keep learning and ask for feedback, you know, constant feedback from the people your direct reports are and even other people as well, get a coach. So, yeah, that's kind of all I'm doing for it. Awesome. And you have a coach, CEO I, coach? Yep. Yeah. Yep. I've got a coach. I've got coaches in kind of a lot of elements of my life, like different parts and, and not just formalized coaches, you know, they're just mentors that, that help me out. Oh, I'd love to hear kind of, could you, would you be able to share? Yeah, yeah, sure. So uh, look, it's not not hugely detailed. I, I have a coach in, in Adelaide. He um, more, uh, more from the business side of things so very uh white collar kind of upbringing um he's also like a psychiatrist as well um so he helps a lot of people so he's got that real ability to kind of bring the best out of yourself as well as like you can talk about lots of things you know it's an incredibly traumatic and stressful thing running a business you're dealing with a lot of other people um so it's great to have someone that's incredibly mindful rather than this is results, 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 because you've got to look after yourself, as you know. So he was incredibly helpful. Um, I also think that getting a formalized mentorship, and that could be in a form of a board as well, um, that you need to report to some accountability, was really beneficial. So that's what I'm kind of setting up now. Hopefully Toby Pierce will help me out in that, that kind of form. So yeah. Oh, awesome. So you're setting up a board? Uh, I, won't, I probably won't set up a formal board, but I'm trying to get more formalized mentorship and like a bit more accountability um, for me and my C-level suite.
0: Yeah, awesome. All right, well, look, um, we're going to move to the hot seat round. Got a couple of questions for you, mm-hmm. and then we'll work to wrapping up. Um, if you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice,
1: what would it be and why? Enjoy the process because it's you know that's that's 90% of the battle and it's just yeah you got to enjoy it as well because you'll look back and you'll you'll wish you enjoyed it more what's the hottest product niche to be selling in right now oh god they're all good the one with the most contribution margin that everyone's talking about
0: (laughs) okay uh if you could have dinner with any entrepreneur dead or alive who would it be Elon
1: Musk he he just couldn't go past it hate to be boring but he's amazing yep and the last one what's one thing you've learned today that you should book flights with long stopovers because I got stuck in Byron Bay coming here. (laughs) That's not a problem? (laughs) Yeah, that's not a problem, exactly. (laughs) Oh,
0: awesome. Well, look, Davey, thank you so much for your time, man. And actually just being so open, honest, vulnerable and humble, congratulations on all your success thus far. I look forward to watching your journey
1: and it's great to connect. Thanks so much, mate. Appreciate it.
0: Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview